following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. All right, if you would all turn in your Bibles to the third chapter of Matthew. Things are starting to happen now, more uh, definitively than before. As we uh, move into today, John the Baptist is going to make an appearance. So the title of the message today is Prepare the Way of the Lord. Seems fitting, John the Baptist, right? So here's what I want to think about, though, as we're about to read chapter 3. What does it mean, really, to prepare for something? I'm thinking of maybe some specific examples that I feel like we could all identify with on some level. So let's say for our, young, our folks who are in school now, in some level, regardless what grade of what school, whatever you're doing, if you're studying, you have a test coming up. You need to prepare for that test, right? So what all is involved in that? You've got to study. You've got to find exactly what's going to be on that test. Hopefully your teacher has communicated that to you, and you have this material, and so you need to read over it, try to maybe even commit it to memory. You're, you're studying. You're going over it multiple times, trying to get it in there so when you get there to the test, you're prepared, right? How about a little bit more uh, practical example for all the adults in the room? Let's say you're having folks come over to your house. You have to prepare, right? Uh, I remember, every time I think about this, I remember a little bit that Jeff Foxworthy did about how he does this five-minute tornado through the house trying to throw things in closets and, you know, stuff things out of the way, make it look like, and, and then as soon as he answers the door, he says, y'all, please pardon the mess, y'all come on in, and, and what you really want to say is, this is the cleanest our place has been in six years, <laughs> you know, but that's not the case. You're preparing for people to come over, trying to straighten up, you know, get things just right, uh, especially if, you know, people coming over for, for supper or something, and you're going to set the table, all that stuff, but you're preparing you don't want to be caught off guard, right? You don't want to make it appear like whatever's happening is an afterthought. You want to communicate there's been some, some thought put into this, right? Preparing. So when you think about preparing the way for the Lord... Why is that important? When you think about spiritual things in general, why is it important to be prepared? There's a saying, if you fail to plan, you can plan to fail. And so preparation has a lot to do with how well things go, right? in a given instance. In fact, there's another saying. I love how all these things just kind of flood my mind all at once when I think about these subjects. Uh, there's a, a saying 
in the Marine Corps, luck is for the unprepared. And so we don't need luck. We just need, here's our mission, here's our strategy, we're going to execute the plan, and we're going to be successful. But not if you're unprepared. So it's important to be prepared for things because that will, in, in many ways, determine how well things go. So, when you talk about preparing the way for the Lord, John the Baptist, he prepared to prepare. He was out in the wilderness, and God was getting him ready. He lived his whole life for a six-month ministry. How about that? He prepared, and God got him right, so that when he began to preach, and he began to say, uh, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. It's, it's, you know, the Messiah is here. That was a big deal, and that, that message was met with all kind of different reactions. So, with, with all those things kind of in mind a little bit, let's look at, at uh, Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to read the whole chapter, 17 verses. And there's three things in particular we want to look at in these three little paragraphs that make up chapter 3. So you can follow along on the screen if you'd like. You can look in your own copy of God's Word. But here's what the Bible says, Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him. Now, isn't that interesting? Jerusalem, not just people from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, like everybody, okay? Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus, answering, said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. 
And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Father, we thank you for this word that's before us. And I pray that you would give us understanding by your Spirit. And then, Lord, I pray you'd be gracious to us. And I pray you'd help us to be obedient to the truth you show us in this text. For your glory and our good, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this particular account about John the Baptist in Matthew's Gospel, remember, Jewish audience, so you're going to see right off the bat a quote from Isaiah, and a little connection there from the Old Testament to try to remind folks uh, that the Old Testament is pointing toward Jesus. But there's three particular concepts in the three little paragraphs in this chapter, and each one tells us something different. Two of them tell us what to do, and one of us, the last one, one of them tells us the, the most important truth about this whole uh, exchange between John and Jesus. So the first, thing, the first thing we want to see here in the text is turn. We need to turn. Now what does that mean exactly? Well, that is a literal definition of the word repent. It means to turn, change direction. Like if I'm walking this way, I'm going to turn around and go back this way. So if you visualize that in the spiritual sense, I'm headed, well, since that's there, I'm going to use this way. I'm headed headlong into sin, and if I repent, that means I turn around and I run to the cross. That's a representation of what that word literally means, repent, turn. So that's exactly what John says here in this text when he approaches the outskirts of the city that's his message you look at verse 2 he came preaching he appears in the wilderness so he doesn't go into town now this is really interesting why do you suppose if John's got this God ordained God called message and it's really important he's preparing the way for the Messiah why would he not go right into the middle of Jerusalem? Because the Bible says he appeared in the wilderness of Judea. Now, why wouldn't you want to go right to where the people are? But here's what he does. He appears out in the wilderness. So then, as you see, he comes preaching. You turn. It's an imperative command. It's funny. It's because the, the you, the subject, is assumed. Turn, like he's pointing almost. Uh, turn, you turn. You, like you need to make a U-turn. You need to turn around, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so, as D.A. Carson would write, all this assumes that man's actions are fundamentally off course and they need radical change. Because why would you tell somebody to turn around if they're going the right direction, right? So that, that shows us everything that's going on is wrong in some way or, or, or other. So we need to turn and turn to Jesus. So he is fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 when it says there in the text, 
This is the one referred to by Isaiah, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make, way, make ready the way of the Lord. So then it describes who John is, and maybe this is why he appeared in the wilderness. Because he was looking kind of messed up, right? Camel's hair, leather belt, eating locusts and wild honey. Not exactly like he's, you know, dressed for success. He's out in the wilderness. But here's what's interesting to me about this whole paragraph. He is preaching. He's preaching a message God gave him for a particular purpose. Prepare for the Lord. But he's in the wilderness outside of Jerusalem because it says in this text right here, if you read verse 5, it says that Jerusalem and all Judea were coming out to him. So when he's preaching, it's almost like it starts with one person or a small group of people and they're out that direction and they hear this guy out here in the wilderness preaching. And so this person tells this person who tells this person who calls their brother or sister or their mom or dad and says, hey, something's really weird happening out here. This guy dressed in camel's hair, eating locusts and honey, is preaching about the kingdom of heaven. But the Bible is very clear in verse 5. Everybody is coming out to him. Jerusalem, all Judea, all the region about the Jordan. So John didn't lack an audience. right? Plenty of people are coming to hear. And what are they doing when they hear his message? It appears that they're listening. Because he says, repent. Turn from your sins. The kingdom of heaven's at hand. And it says in verse 6, they were being baptized as they confessed their sins. So they're heeding the message. Now, why would you do that? Let's just take it, uh, for example, in our culture, in our context. Let's say we drive into Wagner this afternoon and there is a guy standing in the under the pavilion and he's barefoot with a camel hair wrap with a leather belt he's got a honeycomb in this hand and a locust in this hand and he's at the top of his lungs repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand what do you suppose reaction we'd give him? About like that. Just blank stares, right? It probably wouldn't be, oh, well, absolutely, I need to come be baptized. I need to confess my sins. That's probably not the reaction we, we would think would happen, right? So what does that tell you? So you've got you to... Gotta, understand the context and really not read between the lines, but you have to read what's there. If the Bible says that all these people were going out to him, and then the Bible says in verse 6, they were being baptized by him in the Jordan as they confessed their sins, when just before in verse 2, here's his message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If that's happening, if they are heeding the message, what does that tell us? 
about the work of God. He is at work in a major way. Because people typically are not going to respond to that message. You understand what I'm saying? That's, the, the, that's not normal. There's a move of God happening here. And it all started with this command. Turn. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Number two. Bear fruit. Bear fruit. You know what this means? I, I think this is, um, in spiritual terms, I think this is fairly self-explanatory. Bear fruit. Let me uh, translate it this way. Give evidence. Give evidence. Okay? So, we talk, I, I, think, I think we've talked about this numerous times over the last few years. The difference between um, a verbal profession, I'm a Christian, the difference between that and actions that demonstrate that, that truth. So, so we're talking about uh, a credible witness, is what we call it, a credible witness, a believable witness. In other words, the things I say are going to match the things I do. Or, or, or let, me, let me phrase it a different way. The things I do, the way I live, oh, this is good. The way I live is going to um, confirm what I say. Right? So you don't, have to, you don't have to listen to what I say. You, I can tell you I'm a Christian until I'm blue in the face. But that doesn't matter ultimately until you see me live that out. If you watch my life and my life doesn't match up what I told you, what are you going to believe? My words or my actions? You're going you're gonna to look at my life and say, well, he said this, but that doesn't add up. Right? So bear fruit. So you see John's message, and who does he direct this to? Look at verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, because they were thinking, oh, well, the people are all going out there. So if we're the religious leaders and we don't go out there, kind of makes us look bad. Makes us look, there's a conflict, right? So we better go out there too make a good show, right? That's what they were doing. By the way, you know the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee? The Sadducees don't, don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're so sad, you see? I, said, I had to, I mean, I had to. I had to, sorry. So the, the religious establishment is coming out here, and this is how John greets them. You brood of vipers. You're the offspring of snakes. Anybody love snakes? If you raise your hand, I don't know that we can be friends. Sorry. That's just, that's, that, that's not natural, okay? Satan appeared in the garden as a snake, okay? That's all you need to know. Anyway, he calls them a brood of vipers, and then he asks them some questions. There's some sarcasm here. I hope you detect that in the text. He says, who warned you to flee from this wrath that's coming? The wrath that's coming for sin. In other words, the sarcasm is, why would you come out here for, baptize, uh, for baptizing when 
you're not showing any signs of repentance. Because remember the, the message? Number one, turn, repent, right? So he's asking them, what are you doing here? John knows, because of the Holy Spirit in him, they're just coming out there for, uh, for a show. They're trying to put on an appearance. So he says to them, why are you coming out here? You're not repenting of your sins. You're still acting the same way, but yet you're out here to be baptized because you're trying to put on this spiritual show. So we don't need to think... All right, let, let me... Let me Explain it this way. Have you ever had a conversation with anybody and you're talking about a particular sin and somehow in the conversation uh, the other person says, well, I, I mean, I don't know if that's really a sin. I mean, I, I think, I mean, God, God is love. So, I mean, sure, you know, surely he's, he'll be okay with that. You ever heard anything like that? Trying to, like, rationalize their behavior and say, well, I'm sure that, that'll be okay. God will be all right with that. God does not change His standard based on our sinfulness. God's standard is always the same. It's holiness, it's righteousness, it is the life of Christ without sin. So we don't need to think that God is just mildly displeased when people sin. You understand what I'm saying? It's not just, oh, well, I just made a mistake. It'll be all right. No. No, that's not how God sees... People see these things way different than God sees them. It's not like He's just mildly displeased. He is totally and vigorously opposed to evil. And the Bible expresses this very clearly when John asked these religious leaders, who warned you to flee from the wrath that's coming? Not the disappointment. Okay? If it was just disappointment, it wouldn't be all that scary. Wrath is, is headed in the direction of sin. So John tells them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's verse 8. That is our command for this section. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So what does that tell us? What's our lesson? If you say you're going to repent, if you say you're turning from sin, show me. That's what God is saying. Show me. Don't just, don't just say it. Yeah, God, I'm sorry. Until I do it the next time. I'm sorry. And then the next time, I'm sorry. Are you? Really? That, that, things like that bother me. And I'm talking about in my, own, in my own life. That bothers me about myself. That's what I'm trying to say. Because when I sin a particular way, and I'm convicted of it, and I ask for forgiveness, and I, I do my best to, to repent in, in a way that I feel is genuine, and then if I do that again... That just, oh, that just gets all over me. Because I'm like, well, I, thought, I, I repented of that. I, I'm trying to turn from that. Why is that still, why is that still happening? And, and God is, is thinking the same way. John's message that God gives him, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what that means. A credible witness. Live a life that demonstrates you truly are repenting. 
you truly are um, heartbroken, convicted of your sin. So you're turning away from it. You really have changed direction. And so your life now looks different. This is what we call sanctification. When God is sanctifying us by the Holy Spirit and making us more and more like Jesus every day, that's what's supposed to be happening. y'all understand what I'm saying? This is a process, and unfortunately, it is a lifelong process. Repentance, though, has to be genuine. If we want to go to heaven and we want to avoid the wrath of God, it's not just something we can check a box and give lip service to and not be genuine about it. This is a heart-level change. It's something that happens deep inside that God brings about in us. Uh, uh, it's a, uh, almost like a, a righteous anger against sin. We, we're overcome, we're convicted of our wrongdoing because we have offended a holy and righteous God and we know that the consequence of that is death and hell. Apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the blood shed on the cross on our behalf, then the consequences of our sin is hell. And if we don't understand that, then maybe we don't have a clear picture of what the Bible says about sin. This is a serious, serious matter. And God treats it that way. He treats it seriously. If we're trying to escape the wrath and, and escape hell and be welcomed into heaven, then there needs to be a, a harmony between our lifestyle and our verbal profession. You know, we can't just talk a good game. Because you can fool everybody in this building, but you cannot fool the Lord Jesus. He knows your heart. He knows every word before it comes out of your mouth. He knows your thoughts. That right there is enough to make me fearful. The axe is at the root of the trees, the Scripture says. John is speaking to the crowd, specifically the Pharisees and Sadducees, but for everyone. Verse 10, Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Do I need to explain that symbolism? I don't think so. Look at verse 12, the last part of this paragraph. He gives the, the illustration of the harvest. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He's going to gather the wheat into the barn. You understand what he's saying there? He's going to gather his children and bring them to heaven. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Those who reject the gospel, those who reject Christ and His sacrifice on our behalf, if you reject that, you are the chaff that He will burn up with unquenchable fire. This is no laughing matter, y'all. This, this truly is life and death we're talking about. Spiritually speaking, this is one of the clearest pictures in Scripture of the difference between being in Christ and not being in Christ. The difference in consequence in life after this. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's going to clear the threshing floor. The harvest is imminent. 
that means it is near. It's going to happen. We just don't know how long it will be until it happens. So, right at this point, right before we do this final point here, there's some application I feel like we need to to talk about before we look at these last few verses. And, and it may I'm just going to warn you, it might not be all that pleasant. It wasn't pleasant for me when I when I typed it up. So I can only imagine it's not going to be pleasant for anybody else either. The reason why John the Baptist was so harsh toward the religious leaders of the day is because they thought they were holy. They thought they were blameless before God. The problem was they were depending on themselves for their righteousness. They were counting on their family line, we're, we're sons of Abraham, whatever, you know, their position. And they thought they were okay. But here's the difference. And I'm, gonna, I'm going to invoke a, an illustration here from Kyle Eidelman from his really, really helpful book called Not a Fan. They were fans of Jesus. They were fans of God. They were not followers. And there is a clear difference. Kyle Eidelman in his book wrote this. He said, fans often confuse their admiration for devotion. And the two are not the same. They mistake their knowledge of Jesus for intimacy with Jesus. And the two are not the same. Fans assume their good intentions make up for their apathetic faith. It's a totally different relationship to be a fan or to be a follower. So I, I, you know, I alluded to this earlier about why, why do we gather here every week? Why do we come together for worship? And so I want to read this story that Kyle Eidelman is has in his book, Not a Fan. It's, a, it's just a brief snapshot here, but I believe it's very helpful. So this is the, the story he writes about that helps us understand this point. He says, imagine it this way. Imagine that my oldest daughter turns 25. She's not married, but she really, really wants to be. And I decide I'm going to help make that happen. So, imagine I, as her father, take out an ad in the newspaper, put up a billboard, and make up t-shirts begging someone to choose her. I even offer some attractive gifts as incentives. Doesn't that cheapen who she is? Wouldn't that make it seem that whoever came to her would be doing her a favor? I would never do that. I would set the standard high. I would do background checks and lie detector tests. There would be lengthy applications that must be filled out in triplicate 
references would be checked and hidden cameras installed. If you want to have a relationship with my daughter, you better be prepared to give her the best of everything you have. I don't want to just hear you say you love her. I want to know that you're committed to her. I want to know that you would give your life for her. Too often in my preaching, he writes, I've tried to talk people into following Jesus. I wanted to make following Him as appealing and comfortable and convenient as possible. And I want to say that I'm sorry. Folks, this is not a game. Time continues to grow shorter and shorter for us to wake up and be serious about the things of God. And so when we look at this last little paragraph here, I told you we would have two commands and one wonderful truth. Well, you see the two commands. Turn, repent, bear fruit. When you get to verse 13, you start to see this truth unfold. Number three, Jesus is God. There's just no other way to understand it and to see it for what it is, the truth. Jesus is God. He travels from Nazareth to where John is preaching and baptizing out in the wilderness. Nazareth is at the northern end of the Jordan near the Sea of Galilee. In Jerusalem, Judea is at the southern end of the Jordan near the Dead Sea. So this was not just some short, simple journey. This was quite a long walk for Jesus. But He shows up and John is reluctant to baptize Him, as you can imagine. We're not sure how much He knew about Jesus, we're, we're pretty certain from Scripture that he knew him or knew of him, but we're not sure how close they were at this point. But we, we at least know that John knows that Jesus is greater than him, because you see this in the text. He says, I have need to be baptized by you. And just a moment before, when he's talking about Jesus, He talks about how He's not worthy to remove His sandals in verse 11. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So He knows, at least in uh, intellectual terms, He knows about Jesus. But when Jesus shows up, it's almost this, alright, I need to back away here. You're the one that we're focused on. But Jesus reassures John... They're going to fulfill all righteousness by this baptism. So John concedes, you see here in verse 15 and verse 16. But the the principle here is seen in what happens after Jesus is baptized. This is what it means to fulfill all righteousness. If you look at this picture in these last two verses, what you'll see is Jesus coming up from the waters of baptism in the Jordan River and you see the entire Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit present at one place at one time. 
Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, is rising from the waters of baptism. The Holy Spirit in the form of a dove is coming and lighting on Him. The Father in heaven is speaking for all to hear. This is My Son, My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Right there in that moment, before Jesus begins His earthly ministry, it's a a testimony that is indisputable. This is the one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is the one right here. He's the one who has come to redeem you. He's the one that's going to live the life that you can't live. He's the one that's going to die the death that you should die. And if you'll just trust Him, He will save you. It's, it's the most profound truth and, and it's fitting that it's right before Jesus is... He, he's headed into the wilderness to be tempted. I mean, just take a look at chapter 4, verse 1. Next week. After this happens, Jesus is going to be tempted. And then He begins His earthly ministry. But as you see the, the display of the Trinity, the statement... That's made, and, and by the way, I need to point this out. This is really important. When you read verse 17, our last verse, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is very interesting to me because that technically is, is a misinterpretation. Because if you look at the Greek New Testament, the word there that's written in Greek is a past tense verb which is you may think okay well what what does that matter well here's what it matters if I were to translate that literally here's what it would say this is my beloved son in whom I was well pleased or in whom I have been well pleased you know what that means just, it's just more evidence. It's Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. He is eternal. It's almost just as if the Father just slips that in there and says, I've, I've been well pleased in Him since the beginning. There's, there's never been a moment when the Father is not pleased with the Son. John now knows that Jesus is the Messiah, the suffering servant from Isaiah 53, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1 at the beginning of the service today, from the foundation of the world. So here's how we need to conclude. We've already talked about the application of being a fan or a follower that it's not, we're not doing Jesus any favors by believing in Him and trusting in Him. He has done us the most amazing favor. Right. So, He's the one that deserves all the honor and the glory and the praise. We are the ones who should humble ourselves and um, beg for mercy. And, and we'll find it. Every time we'll find it. 
But let me just tell you as I, as I conclude here. And that's not just preacher talk. I really am at the end. L- let me just tell you what's happened to me this week while preparing for this. I have failed God so many times. I mean, if I'm just trying to keep track of the last four or five days, I have, I have failed so many times. I, I have seen my sin. I've come to this realization over and over that if it weren't for the mercy and grace of Christ, I would be burning. So, there's perspective. And the moment we lose that perspective, then we all of a sudden don't think it's such a big deal uh, to be at church and worship Jesus. But as soon as you keep it in your mind that Every time you take a breath, it's because of the grace of God. Every time you're not consumed with fire, it's because of Jesus. He deserves so much more than we give Him. And, and, you know, I'm reflecting on this and trying to to draw this to a close, and I've got this, like this, this much left, and I don't even know how to, to um, sufficiently communicate it. Because there is, there is so much wrong with me. I mean, good grief. You know, let's just be honest. If I'm going to do a, a, an inventory of myself, there, there is no reason on planet Earth why God should use me for anything. But he does. <laughs> it's just, it's crazy. I don't, I don't understand why he would waste his time with me. But what that does is when I, when I get a good perspective on that, it causes me to understand I need to, I need to get on my knees and thank God. And then after I have received grace and mercy and forgiveness and understand the love of Christ from the cross, then I need to get up off my knees and then what I should be doing is every moment I should be surrendering. Every moment. And and living my life for Him. Because He's given me His Holy Spirit, and so I should be living in that. And if, and if that means that I miss out on something, you know, Sundays are tough. And, you know, I, 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 know I'm, I never look forward to the end of football season that we're approaching. But, you know, there's a lot of football being played on Sunday. But you know what? A lot of football being played on Saturdays in the fall. A lot of deer walking in the woods in the fall. A lot of things I enjoy doing. But you know what? If I have to miss out on some of that because I'm here and I'm worshiping Jesus, so be it. There is nothing in this world more important than Jesus. Let's pray.
thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.